Welcome to the broadcast. Every Arizona homeowner's best friend. Thanks for tuning in. It's Rosie on the house. Your weekend wake-up tradition. Come on around back, Arizona, all the way back. Back 40, it is the first Saturday of the month. 8 o'clock, the outdoor living hour of Rosie on the House. So we are talking farm fresh commodities. And Julie Murphy, the spokeswoman for Arizona Farm Bureau, is with us in studio as always and with a special guest. And this one's a little bit different. This isn't a uh, necessarily a, you know what, what you would first think of when you think of farm products, but it's the one thing that all farms need to make a product. Right, exactly. And speaking of the back 40, I was out in Pinal County yesterday on the Hartman uh, place, Brian and um, Mary Hartman, and just had a really good time talking to all these Pinal County farmers. And today, Nick Kinney, who is with us, he's a consultant in the agribusiness field, and he hangs out with the Hartmans and some of the other farm families that we know so well because he's helping us improve our water efficiencies and all sorts of things. So, Nick, welcome. Tell us about you and your business. Yeah, good morning. Um, I'm an ag engineer. A lot of what I do is trying to tease out the efficiencies in the ag production systems, and uh, the biggest one for me is, is water. How do we make the best use of our water? How do we secure that resource? How do we procure that resource? And how do we convert it into calories and fiber and all of those beneficial products that come out of the ag sector? So you don't have the typical farm family background. What inspired you to focus on ag based on what you do and your expertise? Yeah, maybe it's atypical, but I grew up in Yuma. I was surrounded by there farm fields since moment one. I grew up in a little citrus orchard that my dad had cleared so we could have a place to live, and then, you know, it just grows on you. Your, your friends are that way. The people that you look up to that are mentors are, are very heavily invested in agriculture, and pretty soon you find yourself that this is what your passion and your appetite is. And so I started working in packing sheds when I was a teenager, went on and got a professional degree at the University of Arizona as an ag engineer. I've spent time many, many different production systems since then just working on agriculture. It's what I like. So you kind of get to have the broad perspective. You're looking at all agriculture. Just before the show, we were talking, I mean, you've gone out of state. You've been in Texas. You've been in Louisiana. But your heart's here in Arizona, and this is where your family comes from. Oh, heart and home is Arizona, no (laughs) doubt about it. But, yeah, probably the farthest east I've worked is North Carolina. Lots of time in Louisiana. Um, I spent five years in Texas A&M as an irrigation specialist, so I covered a couple million acres in the Texas Panhandle. I actually still cover those same million acres for a different entity currently. I do a bunch of work in California, up into the Delta, as well as in the Central Valley. And then the last couple of years, Southern Idaho and Pacific Northwest, looking at apples and potatoes and onions and corn in Washington. And so it's, it's diverse. And what I, I guess what I bring to the table often is that you can cross-pollinate those ideas from one sector to the other. Where a lot of the farm families I work directly with that have been on the same piece of ground for six generations, they are expert on that ground. But sometimes they get into a, a rut when it comes to efficiency. And so just an idea or two can just boost that next generation to better efficiency, better productivity. Um, and that's, that, that's my contribution to the industry. Sometimes the smallest change can have the greatest impact. That's kind of what engineering is. Oh, that's, that's like the epitome of engineering is, can I help you connect these dots? Because you might be in the midst of it, can't see the forest for the trees. And for me, from my point of view, it's, that's all I see. I see dot to dot to dot, and it, it, it's, it's been a great career for me so far. 
I bet you and Paul Brierley, he was on as a guest, was it last show? <laughs> you probably talk a lot because he's an engineer too. Yeah, so Paul and I had the chance earlier in the year to go to uh, Washington, D.C. And yeah, we found ourselves paired off quite frequently talking <laughs> about these engineering topics. It's, it's exciting. And farming, agriculture really is comprised in that whole scope of engineering. And sometimes you may not have an engineering degree, but boy, you better have that approach to it when you're doing farming. Yeah, so the, the first, I would say, mid-college job I took was in Holbrook, Arizona. Um, and the, the farmer there, who's a, become one of my best mentors ever, he, he looked at me across the truck and said, uh, the best way to train an engineer is to put a shovel in his hand. And so I learned how to operate every piece of equipment on that operation, learned every process. And by the time I was done with it, I realized, oh, this is, this is engineering in action. This is taking theory into practice. And then most every farmer I've been with since, it's, uh, we hit it off quite quickly because I understand the hydraulics. I understand electricity. I understand structures. I understand timing. The processes just roll into place where, um, yeah, it's, this is, this is the, the functionality of engineering. It goes from theoretical to practice. So my conclusion, even though we're at the beginning of this Farm Fresh Hour, <laughs> is that, Nick, you are fully and importantly embedded in Arizona agriculture because of what you did, and this so makes sense that you're here. Oh. By the way, Nick is also on our uh, board for the Maricopa County Farm Bureau Board. So I'd like to jump in and just get our broadcast engineer's attention. Gary, when the show opened... Uh, Mr. Kenny had engineering poetry. Yes. Tease efficiencies out of water to turn it into calories. I'm, we're going to clip that as a best of best of. We're going <laughs> to we're going to reuse that many. That was pure engineering poetry. That was beautiful. Well, you know, the other side of that is all of the agricultural colloquialisms that occasionally I'll sneak into as well. So you might you might grab a, a handful of things you might hear on a ranch, which feel very poetic. But this this is um, you you didn't get the Texas A and M Aggie release. <laughs> no, I didn't. But, <laughs> but I knew that was coming. But he has permission to say it. <laughs> oh, this is good. This is great. This yes, is great. it is. So you've you've been embedded. You're doing a great job with your business and helping farmers just find that next level of efficiency. But what have been some of the biggest challenges that you have been? confronting as you've had your own business uh that's uh that's a very nuanced potentially answer to a nuanced question (laughs) uh the hard thing really is affecting change sometimes we get resolute in things that work and most farming operations that have been in operation for a long time are indeed profitable and effective um i had an ag economist friend who was a colleague for a while his statement was always you're making money but more money and that was the thought is can we do these things better can we improve can we improve and oftentimes there's there's technical avenues to make big improvements but the big hurdles in that is the adoption rate so that that's that's social that also becomes economical that also becomes at, at some point like we were talking with water how the legislation plays in how the regulatory regime plays in and so we're, we're working through a lot of different avenues that become barriers of entry to better practices. And that's been the biggest challenge is I can come up with a theory. I can come up with something that seems like it's going to work. But if I just do that on my postage stamp of a research farm, uh, that affects next to nothing. It has to then roll out from there and be adopted widespread in order for it to make some impacts. Wow. Your business profile mentions your expertise is in subsurface drip and pivot. How did this come about? Okay. Was it just by default or what? No way. This is experience. <laughs> My first job out of college was at Sundance Farms in Arizona Drip Systems. 
worked with the Wurtzes there, and that is very much trial by fire when it comes to drip irrigation. Pioneers and experts, this has now been almost 25 years ago, and they were well engaged in it but still learning a lot of the processes. And I spent a time really getting a chance to have hands-on learning subsurface drip irrigation. And I'm passionate about that. It's a great technology. It's a really good technique. Um, since then, that's been increased by contacts I've had from people who farmed in Israel. Uh, Texas Panhandle, there's a good bit of subsurface drip on uh, cotton. Uh, and then I've grown watermelons personally on drip. And so you, that's how that experience grows. Uh, pivots, though, that... I learned full force when I moved to Amarillo and then worked on those couple of million acres north of Amarillo, almost exclusively pivot irrigation. Now, for those that are listening, uh, a pivot irrigation system is a, a machine that goes in a circle. It covers either 120 acres or close to 500 acres, wow. irrigating underneath it. So the water goes through it. The structure of the pivot itself is a pipe, and then it's got hoses that deliver the water uh, precisely towards the ground and you irrigate a crop on it. So essentially a person can eliminate uh, the irrigator who's starting heads of water and pipes, and the machine just walks the field. It's a great system. Um, but, yeah, that's I learned that in Texas. And very efficient. So it p- causes me to ask the next, next question because those are only two methods of all the methods we can use for irrigation. And no one irrigation method is a silver bullet. What issues, conditions, I know this is kind of a big question, what issues, conditions influence one irrigation technology for a specific farm? Yeah, you bet. So the crops really start to dictate that. The topography of the ground dictates that. For example, corn, uh, wheat, sorghum, cotton, some of those field crops are easily irrigated with a center pivot irrigation system. Uh, Potatoes can be as well. Um, but when you start to get to the, the more specific human consumption crops like produce, where there's a food safety component, uh, you can't put the water on top of those crops when they're getting close to harvest. And so things like furrow irrigation still lead the day. The other part of that is most center pivot type systems perform better in a no-till or minimum till environment, meaning you're not running plows through the field or rippers through the field, where if you have a produce environment – you have to till regularly after each season to make sure that the sanitation is preserved so that you're not getting viruses or pathogens passed along the food chain. So it's a, it's a, it's a bit of a balance there. Obviously, too, when you start to look at some of the permanent crops like almonds or pistachios or cherries or apples, hard to run a center pivot machine through an apple orchard. That's where drip and microspray type irrigations on the ground uh, become more prevalent. Um, yeah, there's, there's no silver bullet, no doubt. And that's what influences what and why we have to use it. We can't just convert to one method because we think it's going to be the most efficient or reduce. Uh, and agriculture is complicated. It's very diverse. You would know that more than anyone. So I have to ask a question because the theme for this show is Arizona water and specifically ag use of water. With our water shortages, crops like alfalfa are getting lots of criticism. What would you say to the public about the importance of this crop in our desert state, besides and, the economic contribution? And I don't know. Nick, can you answer that in 12 seconds? No way. All right, then hang tight. We're going to take a break. We'll come back to that question. As we were going to the break, Julie had asked Nick what to address when people say we shouldn't be farming at all because we don't have enough water well we have to eat so i know the answer to that one but when they are specific <laughs> it'd be an easy question to yeah. answer i know but people still don't somehow figure that out they, yes where are we going to get it um but nick and we 
a lot of our agriculture is very local, and that's part of it. But what's your answer when they get crop-specific, when they criticize alfalfa? So this is going to be a bit of a long answer, but maybe we can have a little dialogue in the process. My background with alfalfa is I, I grew alfalfa directly and marketed it retail to hay um, customers primarily in the, in the northeast part of the state. And alfalfa is about the best crop you can grow in the desert. Really? I know that's confusing to many because you say it's just a thirsty crop. But here's how alfalfa plays out in Hawaii. Uh, Southern Arizona and Southern California are so predominantly focused on alfalfa. Is we can harvest alfalfa 10 times a year in Arizona where most other states can harvest it three times. When it comes to growing calories, there's very few things that can convert water or resources into those useful calories in alfalfa. And we do the best job in the world right here in Arizona doing that. So it becomes a resource balance of do we have enough resource to grow so many acres? Uh, at one point, and, and I know that the, the, the scrutiny over alfalfa oftentimes comes from people that says, well, we should just park all that so we can drink water. Most of what Phoenix is built on at one point was alfalfa fields. Just frankly, we displace alfalfa fields to put residences, which is good, but the people that live in those residences need calories to eat. And that is what alfalfa provides. It's the background in Arizona to our dietary requirements. It feeds directly into the beef industry, but more importantly, it feeds directly into the strong Arizona dairy industry, which is kind of uh, – it, it, it's quietly one of the best industries in all of America. The Arizona dairy farmer does such a good job at converting milk. Uh, if you were to go look at all of the stats, state to state to state, um, Arizona dairy cows produce more milk per animal per day than probably anywhere in the world. Wow. Definitely in America. And so the alfalfa becomes the source to feed that industry, which you can say, well, that's just the industry. We can part the industry. That is the primary source of local calories for the people that live in the Phoenix Metroplex. Right. That's just what it is. And we're drinking it because we're drinking milk. Well, well yes, and you enjoy ice cream and you enjoy cheese and yes. you enjoy beef and you enjoy all of these things that make for a very diverse palate. I like to, to say, and this is one of those colloquialisms, is we like to vote – with our pocketbook for how we like our water to taste. Okay, so if we want to say get rid of the alfalfa, that's basically saying, okay, well then I'm now taking out of my diet 50% or better of my calories. And just putting that context back into the consumer to recognize that this is a crop that's grown because we grow it really, really, really well here. And Julie, it's truly part of the local economy. It's the alfalfa, and the dairy cows eat it, and then we enjoy all the products coming from the dairy industry. And you had a link to one of the articles that you have done on water uh, that's on azfb.org where it talks about uh, – Nick had said we get 10 cuttings a year uh, where some may get three. But also in addition to cuttings, you're talking about ton per acre. This article quotes that Arizona – will average 8.5 tons per acre, where the national average is 3.2 tons per right. acre. So not only do we get more cuttings a year, but on those cuttings we get more, you know, twice as much alfalfa. Rumor yeah. has it that some of the alfalfa on drip even gets more cuttings than the 8 to 9. Yeah, so let me, let me opine on that for just a bit. The alfalfa production system is one that's improved year after year after year. The predominant leader in new alfalfa plantings in Arizona is over subsurface drip irrigation. So that is saying that underneath this blanket of an alfalfa crop that you see on the ground, 
they're small microemitters underneath the ground that are delivering the water. So in that process, um, and, and again, alfalfa is kind of a big crop, so let me talk about it a little bit. In that process, we're no longer evaporating water off the surface. Every drop of water that goes to the field now moves through the plant. The reason we irrigate it all is because of the functions that water provides in the plant. It's a necessary part of so photosynthesis, but it's got three main roles. One is the water gives structure to the plant, so the plant opens up and now it can capture sunlight. That's how we get energy. That's how we transfer the sun's energy into calories that we consume. It's the primary building block of all humanity. Uh, the next step from that is it moves minerals into the plant. So the water becomes the conduit that takes whatever is necessary from the soil into the plant. That gives us the diverse suite of vitamins and micronutrients that we rely on food to provide us. Mm -hmm. uh, the last one is that water serves as a, a radiator for the plant. It keeps it cool or warm, however the plant needs to regulate. With drip irrigation under alfalfa, that water is used exactly how the plant would like to use it to perform the best. None is lost to evaporation. None is lost to the aquifer to deep percolation. Wow. And so what you find is that on less water than thought of previously, you can grow much more alfalfa. So some of this that would, you know, you say the average in Arizona is, say, eight and a half tons. There are certain drip irrigation farms that are well over 12 tons a year. Wow. And that's just that, – that's efficiency. That's exactly what I do. That's yeah. what I – that's the discussion that, that's very germane to what we do. Some other things that are really interesting with alfalfa for the whole sense of it is we don't till either. That right. crop goes in the ground at semi-permanent. It's there for five years capturing carbon in the soil, stabilizing the soil, stopping wind from blowing, capturing CO2 from the atmosphere and replacing that with oxygen so that we can breathe. In a desert where we don't have a forest – that's a crucial part of our ecosystem. Alfalfa accomplishes that for us. That's exciting. And when you're talking ton per acre, that's per year, not per cutting. Yeah, that'd be per year. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so each cutting, if you look at... I don't know if I that was clarified when I said it earlier, so I want to make sure... Thank you for that. Yeah, that'd be per, per, per year. year. Okay. E each cutting is roughly a ton of, of what we'd call dried hay, which is about 20% moisture. Now, you had mentioned all the benefits of you know what we eat from cows, the milks, the cheese, the beefs, the burgers. This is probably not a conversation we'd ever do live on Saturday morning, but what I've always wanted to do is get a specialist in on all the byproducts of animals. I mean, we're just talking about food, the amount of materials and tools and adhesives and I mean, you, you can't beef, do anything. With beef, it's over 100, you, you well know, over 100 byproducts. You know, you all, we, we always hear about how well the Indians and the Native Americans did with that. They'd We're be even impressed better at that what, now. Yeah, they'd yeah. be impressed with what we do you with bet. it today. Yeah. Nothing's lost. An ice cold beer and a place to sit somewhere So, Romy, you have a question for us. Well, this was more for you just because it's happening in real time. The Arizona Game and Fish had put out a publication this week, a press release about the carcass removal program uh, aiming to reduce the Mexican wolf. Depredations. That, on, yeah, yeah. On, on livestock. And right. obviously the livestock is the ranching industry. And, we, you know, it says Farm Bureau, but you all represent the ranching industry as well. Correct. Um, you know, one... One serves the other. Yes. And we have and our lettuce <laughs> and our steak on the same plate. <laughs> well, and, you know, when we're talking dairy, you know, it comes, they're getting fed from the farm. Just, Correct. you know, so it's, they both complement each other. But so I thought, what, what 
is y'all's input on the ranching input on on this? You know, we've got obviously what the press release from Game and Fish came out and talked about the you know the, the reimbursement for lost cattle from right. If I'm a rancher and a wolf kills one of my cows or a calf, then if I take it off, because they have tried to do it, but they have so they're stretched so thin, they only have so many people. They'll reimburse me two hundred fifty dollars if I deal with that, and obviously I'd want to want to anyway. And I'm not, I don't want to diminish this point, but it is true that wolves can get a taste for beef. So one of the other reasons why you want to deal with that carcass is, and now that I as a rancher will get reimbursed, I believe it's up to two hundred fifty dollars. Then there. I'm being incentivized because that's going to be a loss for me anyway. I've just lost something that was part of what was is my ranch business. So, um, but they all acquire a taste for beef. So the quicker you get that car- carcass off of wherever it was destroyed, then we resolve the problem. Or just so, yeah. natural, you know. <laughs> right, and it's you an, ask it's an animal. Sometimes right, they naturally just don't correct, make it. Correct. We grow, we raise great beef here in Arizona. So. But, yes, we're embedded because a lot of the councils that the Arizona Department of Ag has with specific industries within agriculture, a lot of our farmers and ranchers serve on those. So, um, And then there's all sorts of stuff that we're trying to do at the legislature to protect the farmer and the rancher, which ultimately protects our consumers. But So we're, we're covering all, a lot of ground today in agriculture, which we have to do the metaphor intended – because you've worked in so many states, Nick, what fascinates you about Arizona agriculture? If you made a comparison, I don't know if a comparison is fair, but just reflecting on what we do compared to some of the other states. I, I like that question. One of the things that I get when I move to other areas is why in the world do you farm in the desert? And what people don't understand is that those beautiful winter days where people come here to visit, are also so unique in the ag industry. We get to grow produce here year-round, which is amazing. When everybody else is shutting down for the winter, we are kicking into gear. I love that. Um, That's one of the most fascinating things is just the wintertime production in Arizona. It's unique. It's beautiful. It's valuable. And so that's probably item number one. The other is because it is really a resource balance, it creates a really nice challenge. We've got great water resources that replenish regularly, but they're limited. And so now you always have to play this mass balance game of what's going to be the highest and best use of this resource. Um, you also have incredible heat during the summer. And so that creates some interesting challenges because no plant, just like you don't like to go outside over 100 degrees, no plant really likes anything over, say, 95 degrees. And so it creates some interesting management challenges that are just really fun. For me, uh, all those things are great and said and they're technical, but my real passion is because this is home. I grew up in Yuma. I, right. I enjoy that. Uh, and it's so amazing what they do in Yuma, Yuma during the winter. And the oldest known artifacts of agricultural in the entire country are from right here in Arizona, the Santa Cruz River. Uh, so no one under it doesn't you know resonate with people. We've been farming in the desert longer than anywhere else, and because. We have to. We don't have these deep forests of West Virginia where you can just live off the plants and the animals that are in the wild. Out here, it's scarcer, so you have to farm to survive. Well, you know, we forget often that about 70% of all the food comes from arid and semi-arid ground worldwide. 
And it's because you get tremendous control over that environment where your inputs really matter. And I think that the natives figured that out. Said if we want to survive here, then we are going to be able to have some inputs and then grow what we need to. And they did it, and they set this precedence. And when Henry Wickenberg sent, uh, what was his name, Jack Swindle to Phoenix to start farming to provide uh, farm commodities to the gold mine, uh, vulture mine gold mine, he just repurposed the Indian canals that they were using off the river that they had been farming for you know, centuries. So props to the Hohokam. What an amazing people group and what they figured out. And on that point, because some of those same canal systems we've patterned after, what's the most fascinating thing about what we're doing with water here in Arizona that gets you excited? So I quite like, and, and this is going to be not so ancient history, but uh, relatively modern history, is I love the foresight historically to build the reservoirs in Arizona. Uh, for those that aren't paying attention, that is an engineer's dream. So here's what our dam systems do. We, we capture water, so we've now eliminated storm damage in the Phoenix metro area, almost completely eliminated it. Tempe would be washed out every other year from the watershed that starts at the Mogollon and heads from the east to the west. We've eliminated that. Then you capture that water in these reservoirs, so when you have an abundance of water, you can take what falls directly on you, but when you have a shortage, you control and ration that out. So now we're irrigating out of these reservoirs. And then we figured out, oh, we've got a potential energy because we've stored this water at height. Now we're generating electricity off of that water. But since we now have a demand cycle for electricity in the valley as the population has grown, now we can pump better water back upstream to the other side of those dams when energy is really cheap. And then we can generate it immediately when energy is very expensive. And you can fund the whole system. And then the next step is now you've got these beautiful lakes for recreation. And just over and over and over, I think that is the marvel of the West. But all of those dams have presidents' names on them. We've been dead for 100 years. It's like I would love to have us the new Biden dam, despite how much that would, like, cause all this upheaval. Let's get us some modern reservoirs. The same things happen in California. You know, we're talking about this. There might be too many leaks with that dam. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> Come on, Biden. Hey, we've got a lot of Dutch dairymen to to, uh, put the fingers in the holes of those leaks. Don't get me wrong. But, you know, the water becomes interesting because it's almost never really a scarcity of volume. It comes to a scarcity of location and a scarcity of capture. If we had three times the reservoirs in California, this last wave of rainfall that came in the early winter this year would have completely eliminated the risk of drought for a couple of farming seasons in California. But instead, we don't have that capacity to capture either through natural lakes or man-made lakes. And so that water then makes its way to the ocean. I don't hardly separate Arizona from California, farming in both, because the Colorado River goes right down the middle and it's partitioned. As soon as you save any bit of water in California, you could then partition some of the Colorado back to western Arizona. So Biden and his administration really does need to build some dams, at least in California. The whole West, but yes, absolutely. (laughs) Wow. I would have went for some Trump dams too, uh, Obama dams, you name it. Get some president's names on (laughs) On some some structures to store some water. Current president. Well, I've got a question for you. Um, I'm kind of a weather nerd. Mount Washington in New Hampshire was expected to record 100 below zero. In the last 72 hours. Now, how many cattle can you graze up there? Zero. <laughs> there Zero. You 
unequivocally zero. Hundred below. And you can't lift all the production from Yuma and shift it somewhere else and replace that. We need our fruits and vegetables, and you can't grow what they're doing in Yuma right now in the Midwest. Well, this is the beauty of agriculture going all the way back, and this is what ties the world together. That supply chain is crucial. You grow what you can where it's suited to grow, and then you ship it. And that's the, the basis of trade going who knows how far back. But the idea is we have some special opportunities in Arizona. We need to grow what we can and then be the net exporter to different areas that need that product. And we'll do the same coming in. Growing grain corn in Arizona, not really the best use because they can do that in the Midwest uh, you, you know, while keeping their day jobs often. Uh, but the things that we can grow here, we need to be able to be backgrounded and supported on. So the fact that we probably won't get any dams from our current and previous <laughs> presidents, what are your predictions about our water issues in the West? Oh boy, I don't, I don't predict water. I mean, when we You're... talked about, when when we talk about this, this is a, a recharge rain-fed system. It's been somewhat over-allocated, and so this has been on the decline. This is no surprise to anybody. Um, but the issue is that it's always going to be scarce because it's the desert, and we're talking about water that's recharged by the rain cycle. So uh, we have to be wise with what we have is, is really what it comes down to. And to your point, it's not a volume issue. It's a scarcity issue. Yeah, right? yeah. so, I mean, the great example, and this is obviously the other part of the world when you talk about uh, – uh, in Georgia, for example, there's this huge drought going on, and Lake Lanier is going down. It's like, well, yeah, but there's water all over the place. If you could just capture it in this great reservoir, you solve all these issues. And that becomes the, the pattern that we talk about often in the West. We've had a lot of rainfall, historic rainfall this winter, but it still feels like a drought because we weren't able to make use of it. Right. Gosh, heartbreaking. But there, Arizona is posi positioned a lot healthier than even some of our states that have 30 and 40 and 50 and 60 inches per year. Oh, no doubt. What is that about? It, again, was it an infrastructure thing, building reservoirs? and? Oh, so this is a beautiful story to be told about the Salt River Project. And um, really think about the eastern part of the Phoenix Valley related to this. As those reservoirs were, were built, there was also this mines. And, and I, I shouldn't just isolate the Salt River Project. The Central Arizona Project had a huge contribution to this. But we've had rising groundwater levels under the Phoenix Valley for, for years um, because we're able to store that water when it's in abundance and put it back into the ground here for a time of, of later use. So the Salt River Project is expert at this where when it's an abundant here, you use the surface water. When the surface provided water or the rainfall runoff type water is a little bit scarce, well, now you pump from what you stored over the last couple of years. And that balance typically has worked out really well. Uh, you get some acute issues when it is a severe ongoing drought where you get multiple years of, of less rainfall. But um, that's the type of creative thinking that, that does get me excited is you, you capture the water when you can. And when it's abundant, you use what's abundant. That's one of the reasons you, you know, people say we should just keep all the water in Lake Mead. You kind of can't do that. It's a, it's a cycle through. You have to have some room in these reservoirs to catch it, so you have to use it as it comes to some degree. Sure. And the statistic that sometimes shocks people and thinks, well, we're, well, then we are using too much water in agriculture. Well, you have to remember agriculture was here first. And when we developed a state, most of it was agriculture. But even today, 72% of our water use is with agriculture. Residential and industrial splits the remaining. But when that question is asked, sometimes it's posed as a criticism 
What, what's your response? Oh, boy, I'm glad for that. Um, th- that's one of those, those great questions. I don't know any recreational farmers. I don't know any farmers who put it to themselves that say, I'm going to use this water and I'm going to use all this water and my family is going to live so high on the hog. They're growing products that are consumed by consumers. And you cannot even conceivably say we're going to park 10 million people in the desert and then we're going to take all the food source away. When you grow the food using that water that goes directly to the residents there, at some point the resident has to say, hey, I'm grateful to have some food here. I'm grateful to be able to have this background so I can go work in tech. So I don't have to worry about where my calories come from, but I can get up in the morning, have my coffee, have my breakfast, and then go on to do my productive work. Somewhere behind that, an ag field, a farmer is backgrounding that. All All right. We're here with Julie Murphy from the Farm Bureau and Nick Kenny. Nick, we really appreciate you being here. We've touched on two or three soft political topics, the, the wolf, dams. Uh, we've got a texture that is on a way political. We're going to talk over the break as to whether or not we're going to take this topic live on air when we get back. Y'all stay tuned. And by the way, our call screener says the next dam should be titled Current Presidents since it generates electricity. I thought that was good. All right, we're going to talk during the break as to whether or not we're going to take this next text political water question on air. All right, Don, to our final segment here in this Farm Fresh Hour covering Arizona water. Julie Murphy brought in a wonderful guest, Nick Kinney. Uh, the question that we were uh, that was asked as we were going into the break uh, that we weren't sure if we were going to cover is there are farms being bought by uh, people that are not from this country. And in particular, uh, the alfalfa farms being bought by, uh, you know, people from, yeah. Yeah, so Nick, you have a response to that. Sure. So I think there's two questions in there. The first one really is that thought of is it reasonable to export alfalfa to the UAE or to China or anywhere um, basically off-continent? Alfalfa we know consumes water. We spoke about that. Um, We've been exporting alfalfa since the late 60s out of Arizona. That's been a huge piece of uh, the agricultural um, puzzle here. Uh, and as we've seen other economies evolve, um, the uh, uh, affluence of other nations who typically haven't had much protein in their diet as they've increased, they've had to have a source for raw materials for protein. And so we, we've, we've shipped for a long time. So that's, that's not new. The new wrinkle now maybe is the ownership piece. Is that right? It, it is. And the reason for that, from what I've understood, uh, Saudi Arabia got a lot of oil money. But the restrictions and the lack of foresight they had for water future left them in a situation that uh, they need a, a real-time solution now. So they got all this oil money, buy our alfalfa lands, grow alfalfa, and send it back for their Arab horses. It's- yeah, so that's not exactly th- – that, that, that's probably to some degree, but that's not exactly my understanding of the situation. Go ahead. And so um, most of that is that the water in Saudi Arabia is – somewhat exhausted in those production systems. They built up a production system to support this growing affluence. In terms of Arabian horses, that seems recreational. It's actually dairy cattle. They're feeding people. The affluence of consumption of calories is increasing in those countries where historically they didn't have 
that to the extent that we've had in America. And so when you get that, so we need to export our dairy and our alfalfa. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, so essentially, they don't have this the is demand it. for our farm. And if you land. really want to get political, you have to ask: Do we have to subsidize it? Yeah, so it's not <laughs> subsidized, save for the fact that some of that is on state contracts, and that's all legal and above board. Whether that's Reasonable will we'll come down to legislators to determine that at, at this point in time. I know the issue that comes up to me is are we really in, in the mind and attitude that we're going to give benefit to people who historically have been considered enemies? And I know that's where it gets to be a little bit controversial and certainly political. Uh, the export of calories has been going on for a very long time, like we already covered. And alfalfa is just well, what we do and, best. And, and thank you because no one will ever want to touch that. Anytime we ask it, nobody wants to – We'll, we'll say anything like, no, no, don't ask me that, don't ask me that. No one wants to touch it, but that was very eloquent. Thank you. I mean, we could talk at this at, at length, and there's probably lots of opinion, but I think what you would find is at the end of the discussion, the person who's not in the ag sector would walk away thinking, okay, I get it a little bit better now. I'm, I'm comfortable with how this happens. Maybe I don't love it, but I understand why this happens. We're very good at alfalfa in Arizona. That's good. just what it comes down to. And the next sector wants to know about Mansano locking up feed corn. From farmers, Romy, what what do you always say? Whiskey's for fighting. No, that, water, I didn't say water's, that. Water's, water's for a, killing. Water's <laughs> for drinking. Whiskey's for fighting. Yeah. <laughs> water's for fighting. Whiskey's for drinking. There it is. Um, Monsanto, just for reference. Oh, we don't we don't need to go. There. I was going to say let's uh, stay on the water. A touch up on the currency. I mean, there's so many. Uh, Monsanto's not a business anymore. Yeah. You know, so let's. Uh, it, it moves so quickly. Yeah. Yes. So. You know, to wrap up, and we've covered a lot of ground with water, both ground and surface water. Give let's give some more props to our Arizona farmers. What do you, do they do right about water conservation? Oh, there there's many many stories to tell, but but frankly, what it comes down to is their water use efficiency is very high across the board. And when I say water use efficiency, that's converting water into calories. Or water as the resource into uh, an economic driver. So either on-farm profitability or putting people to work or creating great value for uh, the whole region. And our farmers do that as good as anybody. Yep. And if anybody wants to learn more about water, about alfalfa, go to azfb.org because we have – uh, one page uh, newly dedicated to alfalfa and why it is an essential crop in Arizona. And, Nick, you have profoundly explained that more so than I have ever heard in my life. And But there's ways and resources to get to this if you want to drill down and you want to understand. Uh, we don't do these things randomly. We're here, oh, no. We're, we're here for the long game, and uh, we, we're dedicated to feeding our Arizona families. Membership in the Arizona Farm Bureau is only 60 bucks if you're not a farmer. Uh, if you are a farmer, we charge ourselves more. Our ag, uh, our ag uh, membership in Maricopa County is 180 bucks. 